what a privilege to be here with you all this evening. It is um, always a privilege to be uh, sitting in the chair of Alcoholics Anonymous, especially in the chair chair. Um, my name is Jolie and I am a grateful recovered alcoholic. And uh, I just want to say that there has been nothing so good or so bad in my life that has caused me to need to take a drink since March the 9th of 2010. And that's what I'm going to talk about with you tonight is some of those really great things uh, and some of those really not so great things. Uh, and we don't have to drink um, no matter what. Uh, that's, that's the beauty of Alcoholics Anonymous is, you know, it, it doesn't matter what's happening. If we're connected to our higher power, if we're connected to the program, um, nothing can cause me uh, to take a drink, but nothing can stop me if I'm not connected. Uh, you know, the, um, the greatest reward uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous is, you know, that, that miracle that we must not miss. And that is the miracle of passing on the message of hope and recovery, you know, and, and to, to watch people recover is definitely a bright spot in my life. Um, I have a sponsor. Uh, she knows that she's my sponsor because I talk to her regularly. Um, I have the privilege of sponsoring women and the women that I sponsor also sponsor women and men. Um, you know, and the, you know, the beauty of the, the whole sponsorship thing is, is it really is what saves lives. You know, and there's really three S's, I believe, that save our life. And that is sponsorship, that's the steps, and that's service. And I want to talk to you about each of those things today, because those are the things that have truly pulled me through from back from the gates of hell, even in sobriety. Um, you know, I had, um, you know, a, a very normal looking upbringing uh, I'm just going to start a timer so I don't forget and lose track. Um, I had a fairly normal looking upbringing uh, from the outside looking in. From the inside looking out, it didn't look quite as normal as it did from the outside looking in. Um, I didn't even realize that I was being raised in an alcoholic home uh, because it was the only home I knew. It was the only life that I knew. And I don't know where I got this idea that alcoholism was, you know, that very, very low bottom alcoholic that, you know, that we often see come into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. But I thought that's all it was. You know, I thought, you know, we lived in a nice home and, and my dad worked. And as far as I know, he never missed a day of work uh, because of the alcoholism. Um, you know, I thought I thought alcoholism was regular beatings and no food on the table and no clothes to wear and, you know, drinking, you know, cheap wine out of a brown paper bag. So when I drank out of crystal glasses, I didn't think I could possibly be alcoholic. And yet here I am. Um, you know, um, 
as I said, it was a pretty normal looking uh, family. Um, I was a middle kid of four. And you might be wondering, how do you get to be the middle kid when there's four? But that's how this alcoholic brain works. You see, I had an older brother and he very quickly took the position of, you know, the man of the house because my dad worked away a lot. You know, and then my sister came along and she was just this princess of a daughter who, you know, she was the golden child who did nothing wrong. And then I came along on my dad's birthday. I was born on my dad's birthday. And when, you know, when he dropped mom at the hospital, um, the last thing he said to her before he went home to wait for the phone call. And some of you younger people are going, what, what is she talking about? Some of you older folks know what I'm talking about because that's, that's how dads did it in the fifties. You know, they just dropped the kid, the, you know, the, the, the wife off and, and uh, went home and waited for the phone call. And the last thing that dad said to her was tie, tie this birthday present with a blue ribbon. So right out the shoot, I felt like I was a failure to my dad. And he truly was my hero. And I loved him with every fiber of my being. And I did whatever I could to please my dad. And then along came my, my baby brother. And if you have a baby sibling, you know what kind of position that holds in the family. And if you are the baby of the family, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. You're probably in the right place. Um, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. Again, that's what happened in the 50s and 60s. You know, and, you know, in this, in this home where there was lots of drinking, there was lots of comings and goings. Um, and, you know, when you hang with, with heavy drinkers, it doesn't always bring the, you know, the, the most favorable folk into the household. And somewhere between the ages of three and eight years old, the, you know, the, the more work I do, the, the, the younger my memories go back. But somewhere between the ages of three and eight years old, some things started happening to this little girl that shouldn't be happening to little girls. And I'm just going to leave that right there. Um, but it was at that point that I began to really act out. You know, I began to be really angry and fearful. And I started just acting in a way that... Um, that just kind of gave me that label of the middle kid. You know, I, I became that child. And all I ever really wanted was for someone to say, what is happening? What is going on? Why are you so angry? But remember, I'm, I'm born in the 50s and raised in the, in the late 50s and early 60s, and we don't talk about anything. We just brush that stuff up under the rug. And I learned to stuff at a very young age. You know, and because there's alcohol in the home, it becomes really easy access for me. And I start drinking at a pretty young age. Um, you know, and, and, and that's really irrelevant, you know, when I started and, and what my first drunk was like. But what I did know is that alcohol did for me what I could not do for myself. Is all of a sudden those fears went away. All of a sudden I was good enough. 
all of a sudden I was pretty enough. I was smart enough. I was all enough of all the things. So I continued. And I drank a lot through my teen years. And uh, high school became very much on the back burner for me. And, uh, you know, in and about the 10th grade, um, I was in a, my math class and my, uh, my math teacher had explained something and I had no idea what he was talking about. See, I'm numerically dyslexic and, and I don't know that until I'm 45 years old. I'm finally diagnosed with numeric dyslexia and I just go through my life thinking I'm stupid because that's how I'm labeled. And in the 10th grade, when I, I raised my hand and I asked the teacher a question and he says, you're Dan and Donna's sister, aren't you? And I just light up because all remember, all I've ever wanted is someone to notice me. And he promptly says, there must have not been any brains left by the time you came along. And I promptly tell him what he can do with a personal part of his own anatomy. And, and I get an early buyout at high school at that point, because I don't know what high school is like now, but, but in the 70s, that is highly frowned upon. So at 16 years old, I'm out of high school and I, and I moved to Winnipeg and I meet the love of my life at 16 years old and at 17 years old, I'm engaged. And we want to get married immediately because that's what alcoholics do. We fall in love and we, we want everything immediately. You know, just like the, you know, the, the, the big book talks about why we drink, you know, knowing that it's injurious, but I want that sense of ease and comfort and I want it immediately. And it comes at once by taking a few drinks. You know what? So I want everything like that. So I want to marry the love of my life at 17 years old. And my dad sits me down and he said, Jolie, do you really want me to have to sign your marriage certificate? He said, because you aren't even of legal age. And I went, oh, no, no, I don't want that. So we waited till I was 18, another whole six months and, and we got married and, and, uh, you know, by, by, by God's grace and his love and tolerance, we are still married, you know, coming 48 years we've been together. And uh, I take zero credit for that. It, it is all his love and tolerance that has got us through that. Um, you know, and I would love to say that every, you know, every year of marriage has been sunshine and lollipops and it has not. Um, but in our early marriage, we were blessed rather quickly with, with three beautiful children. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't, um, I didn't really want to, I didn't want to drink while my kids were, were being raised. You know, I saw what that did to, to me and the people that that brought into our home. And I wanted to be a better mom. Um, but do not kid yourself because when the opportunity presented itself uh, and, you know, if my mom and dad took the kids for the weekend or Nick's folks took the kids for the weekend, I promise you the drink was on. 
Um, and I would drink as, as long as I could and as hard as I could. And then the kids would, you know, shake me back into my reality. And then sometime around when the kids were uh, teens, um, my dad died very, very suddenly in 1989, just a couple of weeks after Christmas in uh, that year. And, and I was devastated. Um, see, I never had a relationship with my mom. Um, but I, I, like I said, my dad was my hero and I loved him with every fiber of my being and he was gone. He was the glue that held me together. And at that point, I saw my mom and my oldest brother um, spiral out of control with their alcoholism. And I made a decision that I was never going to be that. And I quit drinking. And I think it was somewhere, you know, um, you know how the big book talks about that, that certain type of hard drinker? you know, that given, you know, the right reasons can, can stop drinking. I'm somewhere between that guy and the carpet slippers guy, you know, where, you know, I, I went that, that stretch of time with, without drinking at all, because I wanted to be a better mom. I wanted to be a better um, example to my children than my parents had been to me. But I promise you, I had all the isms. So I was just in a state of sobriety. I was not in recovery. Um, you know, and at, at probably seven or eight years later, my kids were kind of grown and, and moving away from the home. And, and I had a, severe accident and and you know the the doctor told me I would never go back to um to my career which was um doing hair he says you'll never stand again I broke all the connecting bones in my foot broke broke my foot right away from my leg essentially separated my shoulder broke my collarbone I was a hot mess and I spent six weeks in traction and six weeks or six months rather in a wheelchair and I said, watch me, just watch me. And I wheeled myself into, I don't know, I don't know what caused me to do it, but I wheeled myself into the high school uh, in the city we were living in. And I said, I think that I should teach your cosmetology department. And they said, well, first of all, we're not hiring. And second of all, we have a teacher. And I said, well, perhaps I, I should be her assistant. I had no qualifications. They weren't hiring. But that's the kind of chutzpah I had. I just thought I would go in there and state my case. And they hired me. I still maintain it was probably because they had a handicapped parking stall that wasn't being used. So they decided to give it to me. It was just craziness. But I'll tell you what happened is I found a passion that I didn't know was inside of me. 
And it happened because I'm teaching and I have students that are paying attention, that are listening to me. And remember that little girl, that three to eight-year-old little girl that all I ever wanted was someone to hear me, someone to listen to me. And I had me an audience. Now they had no choice. They were students and I was the TA and they had to listen to me. But it ignited something in me. And, and, and this is how I roll immediately. You know, I jumped into college and I took some teaching training and I became a teacher. Because that's how I, I roll. You know, it was a probably should have been about a four year program and I got it done in two years because I'm a get it done kind of girl. And this this little passion uh, just grows into something that I, I can't even comprehend because I went from being a teacher in a in a small classroom to I was a peer teacher in in salons in the city and and then I was in working throughout the province and then they gave me a territory and then I was working down in the U.S. and in in all over the place and I don't say that because I think I'm any big deal it's just that's how things snowballed for me. And somewhere in that process, drinking becomes socially acceptable for me again. And that's where, you know, it talks about the big book somewhere we cross that line. And that's when it happened somewhere in there, I crossed the line. And I don't know when it happened and it doesn't matter when it happened. But I'll tell you what did happen is during those times when I was jet setting all over the world, uh, I was doing things, you know, the big book talks about incomprehensible demoralization. That was me. I was doing things that I would never do sober. You know, and I'm not going to I'm not going to go into all of those details because those details are between me and God and and the people that I owed amends to. And I've made those amends so I get to be free of that now. So I no longer have to carry any of that shame and guilt. Um, you know, and 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 then, you know, I'm 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 doing some work with a friend of mine who's who's suffering with cancer and and there's myself and another woman and and we're working together kind of help Judy out in her salon and and uh, this woman is an alcoholic, but she's an alcoholic in recovery. And she comes to the salon every morning and she's chirping her little AA slogans and, and you know, her easy does it and one day at a time and all this attitude of gratitude. And I just want to take my shears and end it for her because she's making me crazy because I'm so hung over my head feels like it's going to explode. And I truly believe that God has placed her on my path, just planting those AA seeds that would not take hold for a long, long time yet. And she comes into work one day and she has an idea because uh, Judy is no longer with us and, and we're kind of left holding this bag of in this salon and she comes in with an idea on a Friday morning and I don't like her idea one little bit. 
and she leaves for the day and I call my husband and I say, bring the truck. And I empty out the salon. I take all my stuff and half of her stuff and, and I'm gone. And the poor woman comes to work the next day and, and I've cleaned her out. And I think I'm justified in this. And by Monday, I buy another salon. By Wednesday, I've got that owner out. I'm renovating. And by the following Tuesday, I'm open for business. See, that's how I roll. I get things done. And I have that salon for a couple of years. And it is magic because now I can book my drinking appointments all around the time I need to drink. So all my customers that like to have a glass of wine while they get their hair done, get strategically booked so I can drink the way I need to drink. And then fast forward about three years and we move off to another city and my husband is transferred and, and I'm a, I immediately find my people, don't we? We find our drinking friends. And we become, you know, an inseparable pair, her and I, and we drink like fools. And we talk about how we might be alcoholic, you know, and how maybe we do drink too much. But we're not hurting anybody, maybe ourselves. You know, and this is the insanity that the big book talks about. Because you see, we sit and we drink like this and then I pour myself into my vehicle and I drive home in a complete blackout. And I have no idea when I wake up in the morning or when I come to out of this blackout where my vehicle is. And you know, when I do that walk of shame to the window to see if the car is there and it's there. And then I walk out to the vehicle praying all the way there that God, please don't let there any be any blood or, or hair or scratches or bumps or, you know, anything that I've dragged underneath my vehicle. And I promise I'll never do it again. And I mean it with every fiber of my being. I will never drink again, God, if there's, you know, if there's no evidence that I've killed anyone, I'll never drink again. And I walk around the car and there's nothing. And by noon, I'm renegotiating that contract with God. Because the obsession has taken over one more time. And I need to drink. And this carries on for another couple of years. And, and we, uh, we eventually come back to Winnipeg and, and, uh, our first Christmas back here in Winnipeg and, and our youngest son comes home. Uh, actually, all of our kids are home for Christmas and, and it's absolutely clear, you know, that, that our youngest son has got a real problem with drugs and alcohol. And here's the insanity. I've got a drink in one hand and I'm wagging my finger at him with the other, saying, get it together, kid. And we send them off to treatment facilities and, you know, we do, you know, we do whatever, ever a parent can do. You know, and it's a promise I, you know, we made to him, no matter what, as long as you are searching for recovery, we will be there for you. But as long as you are using, you cannot be here in the house with us. 
And he ends up 12-stepping me into the program, although I don't even recognize it. But he leaves, you know, he leaves his big book out and, you know, just all marked up like that with little arrows and, you know, little. That's like, put your stuff away. Don't leave your crap laying around the house. And I have no idea what he's doing because he's the first person in our family that's ever sought recovery. And then one day, I come home and this little flyer right here is laying by the coffee maker with my favorite coffee cup right on top of it. I kind of get the picture then. So I read the questions and I lie through them. I lie through them because I don't want to be honest. And then it says, you know, if you answered more, yes, more than three or four times, that's like, oh, I can't even lie my way through this. And here I am. I am an alcoholic. And somewhere in early March, uh, my husband is home from work and he is home. Now, normally he is at work and I can just drink like I need to drink. Um, but he's home and I can't drink the way I need to drink. And I say to him, I need to talk to you. And I'm nervous. And he says, what's going on? And he knows I've been to the doctor that earlier that week. And I said, I'm really sick. And he's expecting me to say it's cancer or, you know, something that's fatal and I'm going to die. And I don't even realize that what I'm about to say is I have a fatal disease and I'm going to die. But what comes out of my mouth is it's the drinking and I can't stop. And he turns around and he hugs me in, in, a, in a way that he hadn't hugged me in a long time. And he said, I can't, I cannot tell you how long I've waited to hear you say that. And I was horrified. I didn't think he knew. How delusional are we? I thought I had it hidden so well. Now, remember, we've got this, this child living with us who is in and out of recovery centers and in and out of detox wards. So we've got everybody on speed dial and my husband is on it. Um, you know, by noon that day, I'm at River Point um, or River House rather in, in Winnipeg being assessed. And later that afternoon, he's got me at the, at the uh, detox ward in the hospital. And they're saying, we're going to admit you. And I'm saying, oh, no, I've got a big work commitment the following weekend, which I missed anyway, because I drank my way through it. But on March the 9th of 2010, I walked through the doors of that detox ward in the hospital. And, you know, the big book talks about being at that jumping off place. And I was definitely there. I could not imagine what my life was gonna look like from that day forward. Because I could not imagine my life with or without alcohol. And when that big iron door clanged behind me, I swear 
it's like God himself reached right in and pulled that obsession to drink right out of me. And I know that's not most people's story, but this is my story. This is how it happened for me. The obsession to drink was immediately removed. However, the obsession to think still stays with me. So see, you know, here's what happened for me as I came to AA for my drinking, but I have stayed for my thinking. And that was on a Tuesday morning. And on Friday, this is the first piece of service that I want to talk about. See, a, a couple from my home group the St. Patel group in Winnipeg brought a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous to that detox ward. And they shared a message. This is my first day of, of clarity. I'm sure we had other meetings earlier in the week, but my brain was so befogged, I, I didn't hear a word. But that Friday night, I don't know what she said, but I looked at this woman and I thought, that's what I want. There was just, it was almost like an aura about her that I went, that's what I'm after. And I followed her to the St. Vitale group and, and um, you all were telling me I needed a sponsor. I didn't know why they had told me in, in the detox ward to get a home group and get a sponsor. And I had no idea what that meant. But when I saw her, I asked her if she would be my sponsor. And she said, yes, absolutely. And we started working through the big book and we started working through the steps. And for me, step one was absolutely a no brainer. I knew I was powerless over alcohol. I knew that my life was unmanageable by my husband, my kids, by my job, by everybody else but me. Later, I come to realize that the unmanageability is all on me, um, but it takes a while. It took a while for me to sort that out. Steps two and steps three were not a big deal for me either. I came into AA with a, with a you know, God in a box, tightly crammed in there because uh, he frightened me, um, you know, and, and very, you know, very damning and and I had probably done far too much to ever be forgiven and you know and I thought you all were going to burn in hell for your blasphemy of saying oh you know just choose a god of your own understanding and I thought no y'all are going to burn in hell for that um because that's the kind of god I came in with so I went right to step 12 because remember who you're, you know, remember who your speaker is, right? I'm a get shit done kind of girl. And, and I don't, um, I don't want to mess around, you know, tell me what you need done and, and I'll figure it out. I'll get it done. So I went down right down to that 12th step, you know, and, uh, you know, and I, I said to my sponsor, I said, well, wait a minute. I said, what are these, what are these principles they're talking about? You know, I didn't get any principles. Maybe I, maybe I missed that day. Maybe you just forgot to hand them to me. And she said, well, go back and read that whole thing again. She said, you will have a spiritual awakening as the result of doing these steps. 
then you will try to carry this message to other alcoholics and you'll practice these principles in all your affairs. And I was like, ah, oh, me too. I've got to do these steps as well. So we do, you know, we go through these steps. And here's what I learned, you know, in step one, where I, you know, admit that I'm powerless over alcohol and that my life had become unmanageable. You know, I, I learned the principle of honesty. For the first time in my life, I become honest about the fact that I can't drink like normal people and my life is unmanageable by me. And then in step two, when I come to believe in this power that you guys are talking about, it gives me a little bit of hope that possibly if this thing is working for you, maybe it'll work for me. And in step three, when I make that decision to turn my will and my life over to, the, to this God of my understanding, and at that point, it was very definitely a misunderstanding. But I have some faith that I can go forward. And then in the fourth step, when I make this searching and fearless moral inventory, you know, I develop the, the, the principle of courage. Because I don't know about you guys, but it took some courage for me to dig into those deep, dark corners. And then in the fifth step, when I admit to God, to myself and to another human being, which was my sponsor, the exact nature of my wrongs, I learned the principle of integrity because I come clean for the very first time. And then in six and seven, you know, where I, you know, when I, where I become entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character, there's there's a principle of surrender there that I've never understood before. And then in seven, when I humbly ask him to remove these shortcomings, I learn the principle of humility and what humility really means. And that it's not humiliation. You know, humiliation is what I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous with. And then in eight, when I make this list of all the persons I had harmed, you know, it's like I, I get into this whole principle of brotherly love. You know, I'm, I'm joining the human race one more time. And then in step nine, you know, when I start to make direct amends to all the people that I have harmed, you know, the principle of justice comes to me. And then in 10, when I continue to take personal inventory, my own inventory, I'm no longer taking yours. I learned the principle of perseverance. And in 11, when I, when I continue to seek through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with God. Improve it means I'm growing it. So I'm growing my spirituality in 11. And in 12, I've had that spiritual experience as the result of doing these steps. And now I get to carry the message to other alcoholics and to practice these principles in all of my affairs. So not just in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, 
but in my life with my family, in my life in the workplace, you know, in my life in the grocery store, when somebody is just taking too long at the till, I get to practice these principles in all of my affairs. You know, when uh, I, I talked about two particular incidences of, um, of service that I wanted to talk about. And the other one was, you know, was, was one when I met my first sponsor. And the second time was when I was about, I don't know, four and a half years sober. Um, somebody called me and asked me if I would, you know, if I would host someone that was coming into town for our Keystone conference. And I had no idea what that meant. But what I did know is when you're asked to do something in Alcoholics Anonymous, the answer is always, you know, when and where, you know, that. Uh, so they just said, well, just pick this woman up. She's she's flying in. She's one of our speakers. And could you meet her at the airport? And and I do. And and, uh, you know, we we hang out for the weekend and we become friends on Facebook and I listen to her story. And and I think, oh, man, I don't know. I don't know how you do it. That's a that's a tough life that you've lived through. And she runs a retreat and she invites me every year to come to her retreat and and we're just friends on Facebook and and I lie to her every year and I say, yeah, I'm coming and I don't go. And, you know, I really. I really thought that, you know, that my life was going to be sunshine and lollipops when when I sobered up. Um, you know, because even in sobriety, I'm delusional. And life is in session. You know, and and uh, our oldest son, you know, who did not like the way, um, you know, we were um, caring for um, our youngest one who was really struggling with his addictions. Um, you know, and my daughter had, you know, left her husband and and she was living with us and and her kids and and you know it was it was really hard and and my oldest son disowned me for several years and and you know I never got to see him or or the grandkids and it was it was really difficult you know and I watched my daughter you know into the fire and and uh, you know she got into a very abusive relationship. And this is me watching all this stuff happening in, in complete sobriety. And through talking with my sponsor and, you know, it's, it's like there's nothing you can do but pray for them and be there for them. Practice these principles in all your affairs, including with your children. And on September the 7th of 2016, that youngest boy of mine, lost his battle with this disease. And I'm six and a half years sober. And I want to die in the middle of the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I know I can't drink. And what is going to get me through? And my family showed up. My family showed up for me. 
And something I forgot to mention is, is uh, my oldest brother, um, he, he died as well. And I watched my mom, at, well, I, I, I just say it, you know, I lost my mom the same time because my mom just disappeared. And I didn't understand. And I had made amends with my mom. But I just didn't understand. And when she came to the house after uh, Nicholas had passed, all she said to me is she hugged me and she said, Jolie, I know. And I finally said to her, I said, Mama, now I know. I knew the kind of pain that she was going through. But see, she didn't have a program. And I did. And my family left. But you know who never left? You guys. You guys stayed with me. You guys brought me meetings when I couldn't get out of bed. You brought me food when I couldn't cook for myself. You literally held me up through all of it. And you know that woman that I hosted? She's my first online friend that messaged me. You see, because her story all of a sudden was my story. See, she had lost a daughter. And now I knew. And six short months later, actually seven, it was Mother's Day weekend, my first Mother's Day without my son. And my mom is laying in the hospital, dying. And I promise you, I was having a conversation with the God of my understanding. And it went something like this. How dare you? The worst Mother's Day of my life. And you are taking my mother. See, because I'm alcoholic and I'm in pain. And I make everything about me. See, I'm not thinking about my aunts and uncles who are losing their oldest sibling. I'm not thinking about my grandchildren who are losing their last grandparent. I'm not thinking about my stepdad who's losing his wife. I'm thinking about me. My son died alone. And that was the hardest thing for me to get over. Because I've always said no one should ever die alone. And let me tell you about the God of my understanding. Let me tell you the gifts that I got that weekend. My mother spoke from her deathbed. She talked about my dad being there. She talked about her mother coming there. 
She talked about an auntie that was there. And on Mother's Day morning, she said to me, Jolie, you're never going to guess who came to visit me this morning. And I said, nope, I probably won't, Mom. Who was here? And she said, Nicholas came to visit me. She said, Jolie, he looks so good. She said, he looks better than he's looked in years. And I knew in that moment that he did not die alone. I knew that my dad had come for him. His other grandma and grandpa had come for him. His friends that had passed before him came for him. And he was never alone as he made that transition. So these are the gifts that staying connected through Alcoholics Anonymous has given me. You know, when that, that son of mine that, that disowned me, you know, he's, he, he comes in and out of, out of recovery. Um, you know, he's, he's doing the best he can. He's sober right now. And we have a beautiful relationship, you know, something that I prayed for the whole time that we were separated. And I do have a beautiful relationship with him and his new fiance now. And my daughter, you know, who went through that horrible, horrible, abusive relationship. You know, out of that horrible relationship, you know, we have this most beautiful granddaughter. She is absolutely the apple of my eye. See, these are the gifts of recovery, you know, and nowhere, you know, nowhere in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous does it say, you know, that the unicorns are going to come and they're going to sprinkle fairy dust all over your life and life is going to be perfect because it's not. I promise you, life is in session. But with these principles, you know, and I just talked about the you know, the 12 principles that, you know, and those aren't even AAs, like somewhere, you know, they've kind of got attached to the steps. But within, you know, each one of the steps, there's multiple principles, you know, as well as the traditions, you know, our traditions are, you know, steeped with principles as well. And, and so are our, our concepts, you know, and, and there's just, there's, there's just so much that we gain from working these steps and living these traditions and, and passing on the message, you know, through the service of, of um, being a, a, mem a, good, a, a member in good standing, as, as I like to say, you know, I suit up and I show up, um, you know, when, uh, you know, when I, when I got connected with, with Vivian, who is my current sponsor, which was after my mom passed away and, and uh, she finally, she said, are you coming to this ladybug retreat or not? And I said, yeah, I'm coming. And I went. And, you know, she told me the truth. She told me the truth about myself. 
She didn't care about my feelings. She cared about my life. And she took me through another set of steps very quickly, I might add, just exactly the way Bill and Bob did it in the beginning. We get through this stuff in a hurry. There's no point in delaying. You know, I've got these renewed relationships with, you know, with the people in my life. You know, I got to be with my mother in, in you know, for her last breath. You know, what a gift. She was there for me when I drew my first breath. And I got to be there for her when she drew her last. With no regrets. No remorse. No resentments. Just absolute, pure, unconditional love. I See, I finally got to be the daughter that she always deserved to have. What a gift that is. I wasn't sure what to expect, you know, when, when I sobered up, you know, when I made that decision to give this sobriety thing a try, you know, I, I, I wasn't sure what my life was going to look like. But I can guarantee that you this, my friends, this was not it. I want to thank you so much for the privilege of being with you today. It has been absolutely my honor. I love you all. Thank you for letting me share.